0: Today our scripture reading is Matthew sixteen twenty-one through 17, verse 13. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, "'Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns.' Then Jesus said to his disciples, "'Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul?' Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased." Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, Don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The disciples asked him, Why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist.
1: Awesome. Thank you. Hey, good morning. Everybody good? All right. I love this passage. And by the end of this, you will see why. I think it is one of the greatest passages in the book of Matthew. And uh, it's saying a lot because Matthew is an incredible book. And uh, as you've probably noticed as we've been doing this. um, So here's how this goes. Matthew peaks right at the previous passage that we talked about last week. It is the center of the book of Matthew. It is on like the scale of like the plot. It peaks right here. Um, at the declaration, like, Jesus sits all his disciples around and he says, who, who are people saying that I am? And some are like John the Baptist and this and that. He's like, who do you say that I am? And he says, Peter replies and says, you are the Messiah. Now, that explains this verse right here. The Messiah, um, it's a Jewish word that means... Um, anointed one. Um, And when they say anointed one, that's their way of saying king. Because when someone in Israel became king, they would pour oil on their head and they would take their their thumb and dip it in oil and put it on their their right earlobe, their right toe and their right thumb. It's got a lot of symbolism. Doesn't matter for us this morning. Um, However, this is how they would, uh, by anointing this person, they are saying, you are now the leader, the human king of Israel under God. You will follow God and we will follow you. Um, And this is what it means to be king. And so Jesus is declared, Peter says, you are the Messiah. And he has this huge thing that we talked about uh, a couple weeks ago. Um, and then he says, or it says, right from this point on, it says, it says, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders. So here we are. This is today's passage, and this is about why they're going to Jerusalem. Um, and it makes perfect sense in the mind of the early Jewish reader. And so I think by the end of this passage, um, I want you to, to remember one thing as, as we head through this passage this morning. These um, number separations of verses and chapters, they did not exist until about the 15th century. So 1,500 years after the time of Christ, after these books were written. Um, that is when all these number separations were put in. So these, this thing is supposed to be read at the, as this straightforward thing. I have combined the end of 16 with the beginning of 17, chapter 16 and chapter 17, so that you will see sort of this movement that happens in the book of Matthew that is really important for where the book's going to go. So I'm going to pray, and I'm going to show you this movement in the book of Matthew, and uh, it's, it's going to be awesome. I have a feeling it's going to be awesome. Okay, so um, before I pray, I want to remind you. I had a lot of you throughout the year say, I'm interested in baptism. Um, when is that coming? Uh, it's, it's in two weeks. I know we've announced it a few times, and I talked about it last week. In two weeks, we're having our baptism service, and I know it's been a little difficult to sign up. You have to go to a website and scroll to the bottom and find the thing and click sign up. So I put a piece of paper in the lobby, on the table, write your name on it, and I think there's an email they're asking for. Just sign up if you want to get baptized. No need to go to the website or anything like that. Just sign that piece of paper back there, and we'll reach out to you in the next week and let you know here's what's going to happen, here's how it's going to go, here's how you should prepare. Um, And so I want to invite all those of you who have asked who are interested in baptism, Uh, put your information down right up there and uh, let's pray shall we let's pray Father thank you for this place and these people thank you for what you are 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 guiding us into thank you for the people that we are becoming Um, we have a long ways to go fashion us in your image make us a people that are more loving more peaceful more unified in the things that are important Um, let us be open to you Let us learn to follow with everything that we have. As we listen uh, to these words of these ancient people this morning, I ask that you would reveal to us something that we have not seen that applies directly with maybe the thing that we are going through. As individuals, or as a people, or as a church, um, worldwide or local, um, show us something this morning that you need us to see. Thank you, Father. In your name. Amen. So here's our passage. From that time on, after Jesus was called the Messiah and the king, um, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. I'm going to pause there. Why would he go to Jerusalem? Why would the king go to Jerusalem? Because the Israelites, from the very beginning of their scriptures, have been promised some very important things. They were promised that, first off, salvation would come to the entire world, the Gentiles, that humankind would be restored to its rightful place through them. Um, and that this would happen when they receive land and when they receive their Davidic king who will bring them to peace. Okay? Now, they had the land. They were living in the land already. However, it was occupied by Rome. Um, And they're waiting for their Davidic king. And by Davidic king, I don't just mean a king that's like David. I mean a king who's literally born from the line of David, an heir of David, whom Matthew at the very beginning goes into great detail to show you that this is Jesus. Um, Not only that, a king who will sit on the throne of David, David sat on the throne in the city of Jerusalem. So Jesus is called the Messiah by his disciples and he looks at them and he says, well then I guess we need to go to Jerusalem, don't we? Not only that, um, it says, he began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hand of the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, that he must be killed on the third day, raised to life. Now, he says, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to suffer. Um, when Jesus walks into Jerusalem and the people are there, we're not there yet, we're going to get there, and the people are there and they're waving these palm fronds and they're saying, Hail to the Messiah. They're saying, Welcome, King, like King David you're back, please proceed to enter into your temple um, offer the sacrifices and then sit on your throne. Um, the leaders of the Jewish people, remember, have compromised everything that they believe and they are now in bed with the empire. The Sadducees and the Pharisees have partnered up. The Pharisees less so the Sadducees, full throttle, partnered up with the empire. Um, and they are in control of the people. They have a lot of prestige and power and wealth Jesus is a threat to them. If Jesus marches into the city of Jerusalem, being hailed as the Messiah, they are going to kill him. They know what this means. For anyone to call Jesus the Messiah and then for him to walk into Jerusalem. That is all that's happening here. Jesus is telling them, if I'm the Messiah, then here's what we're going to do. We're going to go to Jerusalem. Now, likely they are thinking, oh, we're going to lead a surprise attack. And we're going to take over the throne and we're going to draw our swords and we're going to do our thing. And then Jesus says, no, 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 I'm going to die. So this brings us to Peter. And Peter has an interesting response when Jesus says he's going to die. He says, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he says, this shall never happen to you. Okay. So Peter, hearing Jesus talking about how we're going to go to Jerusalem. And in Peter's mind, as in every good Jewish boy's mind, um, If he's the king and we're going to Jerusalem, then we're going to overthrow Jerusalem and we're going to take the throne and we're going to rule and he's going to be our king. And so Jesus says, and I'm going to die. And Peter pulls him aside and says, hey, see this? And he pulls out his sword. He's like, you see this thing? They are not going to kill you. There's no way. I've been swinging this thing. I'm good. I'm going to defend you. I'm going to defend you. I'm going to defend you. And we're going to be fine. Okay. Now, Peter is basically stepping up and saying, there's no way that I'm going to let them kill you. What Peter is doing here is he is showing um, the Jewish characteristic called zeal. Zeal is a very important thing in the Jewish mind. Um, zeal is something you display when you are so committed to the honor and the holiness of your God that you will do anything to defend that honor, um, even die, even take up a sword and die defending the honor of your king, your God, whatever. This is what zeal was about. Um, zeal was not necessarily a bad thing. Um, there is not a single um, Jewish person in that area that would have heard Peter say this. That's no, there's no way that's going to happen. Um, there's no way a Jewish person would hear Peter say this and say that he was doing something wrong. In fact, Peter, in the minds of the Jewish people, was doing everything right by telling Jesus, there's no way, I've got a sword, we're all going to step up, and we're going to defend you, okay? In their minds and in their eyes, it was the right thing to do. However, Jesus looks at Peter. It says, Jesus turned turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Okay, what just happened? Because Peter, in the last passage, has just been told, the church is going to be built on you. I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom. And now he's like, you're Satan. And it's, there's this like quick swing, okay? There's like this, how did, how did we just go from that to that in like the same conversation? So um, when, when Jesus calls him um, Satan here, there's this, there's this really interesting thing. Because Peter, in that moment, is there standing in the place... Um, that Satan was in during the temptation of Christ, okay? Um, There's this thing happening where Peter is tempting Jesus with the exact same thing once again that Jesus had rejected in the wilderness. uh, he was tempted to take the way of power, sensational acts, wonders, calling upon an army of angels to save him, maybe even fight for him. Um, and these temptations keep coming back through different things and different places. Uh, when Jesus is praying at one point, is there any other way? Um, and when Jesus is on the cross and someone's calling out, why don't you call down an army of angels to save you? What this is, is the constant temptation to abandon the way of, of heading downwards, the way of suffering and pain, um, and to display earthly power because Jesus is a king. Jesus is setting up his kingdom. And what happens when you set up a kingdom? How are kingdoms set up? Well, they're set up very easily. Um, through military might. We get our soldiers together, we get our weaponry, we pick our guy, we educate him on everything he needs to know, and we lead a revolution, and we overthrow everything, and we instill our guy, uh, we install him as the king, and we stand around and defend him. It it requires military might, it requires political prowess, it requires lots and lots of money and power and persuasion, it requires lots and lots of powerful people. What it does not require is the uses of anyone at the bottom of the scales unless they're being put in the front of the lines as soldiers to die for their king. Okay. Peter pulls Jesus aside and he says, I'm here to defend you. And they are not going to kill you. And Jesus looks at Peter and he says, Right now, you are displaying the attributes of the kingdoms of the earth, the kingdom of Satan. And I need you to come back to me. He says, because in this moment, I need you to realize this is not how the kingdom of God comes. It does not come through power at all. It comes through humility and service and grace. The kingdoms of this world are established by pointing out the enemy and then wiping them out. The kingdom of God is established by pointing out the enemies of God and going and serving them and washing their feet and working for their healing. This is how the kingdom of God comes. Not by wiping out the people who are in your way, but by embracing them and telling them, they are a part of this new thing that is beautiful and giving them hope. There's a section on our website, which is, um, it, it, it's, it has sort of our four values, truth, beauty, community, and motion. The truth section, underneath that, there's a line in there that I get a lot of emails about from usually the, you know, the, the theology, theology police, right? Um, got an eye on Tommy. Um, and they, I get emails about like this pre- specific line that says that the message of Jesus is an unorthodox orthodoxy. They're like, what do you mean unorthodox? Orthodoxy, because I I believe in orthodoxy, but not unorthodox things at all. Okay, I don't like the word unorthodox. Now, what I mean is this. Um, There is nobody that thinks you can win by purposely losing. There is nobody that thinks you can make things whole um, by dying. There is nobody that thinks the way to power is by losing everything. There is, the, the way that Jesus is offering us that humble yourself and you'll be lifted up. That is that is the way to greatness, is to become lower than everyone around you. Um, in the kingdom of heaven, it is this opposite thing than the kingdoms of this world. And the path to Christ and the path through Christ into healing um, requires... A complete opposite direction from everything else. And so Peter pulls Jesus aside. He says, I've got weaponry. I will defend you. And we will kill them if they come at you. And Jesus tells him, that is not how this works. You're taking part in the, in the, in the, uh, in the kingdom of, of Satan. I need you to come back to the kingdom of Jesus. And then he says this. Um, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. This is a regular line that you would see back then and you could still see today all the time. People talk about, we're going to take up arms And take care of the problem. We are going to take up our swords, our guns, our rifles, our military might. And we will banish the problem laid out before us through destruction and use of force and power. And Jesus says something different. He says, take up your, not swords. He says, cross. Now, here's the thing. We are 2,000 years after this conversation. When we think of the cross, we think of Jesus. And we think... um, Take up your cross means take up the message of Christ and send it out. All of that is true. However, it's important to realize this was pre-crucifixion, this conversation. They are back here. If this is the cross, then they are back here. And when Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me, they are thinking of the cross as something totally different. Because Jesus had not yet been crucified. In their day, the only people that were crucified were, um, well, there's this particular word that is used to describe these people in the book of of John, chapter 18. He he uses the word, the Greek word, lestis, which means revolutionary insurrectionist guerrilla. Those are the people who are crucified. When the day Jesus was crucified, there are three people that are set to die. Jesus takes the place of one of these men. He is described as Lestus. Um, the, um, the Revised Standard Version describes these, these men dying beside Jesus, not as thieves, but as, as insurrectionists. That is in the meaning of the context of the phrase, of the usage, and, and the historical context of the day. That is what they were. A crucifixion was um, a method whereby they could both kill the person who led an insurrection against the empire and rejected the king. They could kill the person and they could teach a lesson to everyone around. They would usually put them up by the roadside, and they would crucify hundreds of people who led uh, insurrections against the empire of Rome. And you would see them there, and they're alive, and they're suffering for days and days and days. Them and all of their followers down the road. And you would see these men, and they would be suffering and dying slowly over time. This is how Jesus was crucified. It was not something they just did to robbers. They would just cut the hands off of robbers and send them on their way. Usually, second, third offense, they'd just be executed. Um, But crucifixion was a specific thing. So when Jesus tells them, take up your cross and follow me, they have particular views in their mind. He's saying, we're going to reject everything that that they're offering us. We reject all of it. That is not the way of God. We are doing something different. It will not be the way of power and might and riches and glory. It will be something wildly different. And then we go on a little farther. He says, For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Usually, if you want to save your life, you have to take the lives of your enemy. But he says, No, 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 no. You want to save your life? Give up yours. And then he says, But whoever loses their life for me will find it. It's all backwards. Um, What good would it be for someone uh, to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? What good does it do you to gain all this power if on your way to that power you gave up every single thing that God stood for and you rejected it all? And there you stand with all the power that you received, but like Jesus, you had to worship Satan to get it. And there you stand. With all of your power. And Jesus says, when you get to the top of that, will you have lost your soul? Will you have rejected everything that my kingdom was built upon? And he's poking and prodding them. Then we go a little farther. He says, "Or well, what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? In other words, like what's your soul worth? What would you sell it for? What would it take for you to absolutely sell your morals, your faith, all of it? What would it take for you to rise to that place? What, can a, what would a man give in exchange for his soul? Now, Um, this is how sort of the world works. What Jesus is doing is taking everything and turning it backwards and saying, however you think kingdoms are established in this world, the kingdom of God is opposite. Um, N.T. Wright, when he describes this passage, describes it as, uh, he links it to the old Lewis Carroll story through the looking glass. Maybe you've read this or seen the movie. I didn't actually see the movie, the book. Um, I remember when I was a kid reading it. I don't remember a lot about it, but there's certain aspects of it that I remember. I remember the Jabberwocky. It was a cool name. Um, and I remember um, that there was this mirror above um, above her mantle. And that, you know, when you look in a mirror, everything's reversed. Everything's backwards. In the mirror, if you want to raise the right hand of the person in the mirror, you have to raise your left hand. Um, if you want to part your hair on one side, you have to part it in the other. It's all very confusing, right? Um, and so... Everything is backwards. If you're wearing a logo on your shirt, it's written backwards. And so this idea in the mind of Lewis Carroll sort of became the center of the story. She passes through the looking glass, Alice does, and she's there. And she comes to realize that everything is reversed, not just the way that it looks, but how it functions. That if there's a place you want to go, it does you no good to walk straight towards it. The The closer you walk towards it, the more you head straight towards it, the farther away it moves. But if you turn around and you walk the other way, what you'll find is that you have arrived by heading the other direction. And N.T. Wright argues this is exactly the perfect parallel to what Jesus is doing. Um, He's telling his readers, um, everything in the mind of Christ is the right way around and everything in, in our minds as human beings is backwards. World peace will never come by the way they have told you it will come. It will only come through the path of the cross in Christ, through the kingdom of Jesus. This is what they are offering you. And this is what Jesus is offering you. And it is backwards and it feels like, so what am I supposed to do? Just let him, let him. That's, a, that's the question, isn't it? Always. It's always the question. What are you going to do when this happens? And Jesus' response is, what will a man exchange for the price of his soul? The question is, like, what good does it do to gain the world and lose your own soul? And so... Paul is writing the, to, the, to the church in Corinth and he takes part in some of this conversation. He says, for now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, and then I shall know fully, um, even as I am fully known. So there's sort of this, I, I see a little bit of it. I see a little bit of it. Paul earlier in this, in, this, in, this, uh, um, in this book, in this letter writes and says, look, the message of the cross is foolishness to everyone who doesn't believe. It's foolishness. Of course it's foolishness. But what Paul has experienced, he says, he says but what I have seen um, healed me. The suffering, the heading downward somehow brought me hope and life. And so I know, I know that this is the right way. I can't lay it all out. I, I have faith. I, I think, he says, I, I think we're looking like in a dim mirror, like it's hard to make out exactly what's going on, but we see a part of it. And, and And the fact is that we need to have faith in this thing, that this is the right way. And how can we have faith in this? By looking back at Christ and looking at what has happened since his death and where this came from. Now, um, this is where it gets interesting because Jesus describes, let me find out where we're at here. Okay, so Jesus describes this backwards way. I want you to say, this is is the most important part to me in the book of Matthew. Jesus describes this really backwards way which the kingdom comes. And then, he gives them a display of it, which most people don't see. And I want you guys to see this. Okay, so it goes like this. There's this thing called the transfiguration. Um, and it seems like this really bizarre event and people debate, what is this? What is going on? It's, it's, it seems out of place in the book. Read it. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and he led them up a high mountain by themselves. And there he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as the light. Um, Just then there appeared before them Moses Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. If you read the other parallel passages in John um, and in the other Gospels, you're going to see a lot more things that are described as happening um, here. So this is... What people refer to as the Mount of Transfiguration. Okay, we got a second. Let me let me talk about this picture. First off, this is an old picture taken before all this. There was all cities down here, and that's why I kind of wanted to use it. Second, that's Mount Tabor. Eighty-five, ninety percent of of pastors will say like this is where the transfiguration happened. Um, and there's even a church on top of it um, now. Today, hundreds of thousands of Christians go there every year for a pilgrimage to go to the Mount of Transfiguration to see the place where Jesus was transfigured and Moses and Elijah appeared. And guess what the church is called? Church of the Transfiguration. Um, and, uh, and so this is Mount Tabor. I happen to know in the first century, there was a giant fortress on the top of that mountain. I don't think Jesus went there. <laughs> However, um, there was another mountain. Some of you are like, oh. But there's another mountain not far from here, the other direction that also looks down over the city of uh, Caesarea Philippi over there. Um, and that is called Mount Hermon. I think that's where it's at. I don't have any inspiring, beautiful pictures of it to put up because it's a giant ski resort now. (laughs) So, but I'm sure some of those skiers are like, whoa, I had this experience on the mountain. Um, But for the sake of unity in the church this morning, that is the Mount of Transfiguration. Okay. I'll go with it. I'll just, we'll, we'll play a game. Ready? Now. Okay. Now, several things happen on top of this mountain that you need to see. Uh, I listed them here so they're easy to digest and easy to, easy to understand. First off, um, white clothes. Jesus' clothes turned like super white, all white everything. He's wearing it all. Now, um, after that, uh, clouds start descending upon uh, them that are bright white and shining and just illuminating everything. It's really beautiful. Um, then he's flanked by these heroes. Moses and Elijah show up, and they're standing there. It's like, "Oh." Ah! And, and Peter's like, hey, big fan good to meet you. I've read your work. Um, And so Peter says, this is great. Why don't we stay here? Peter steps up and says, I've got an idea. Hear me out. I'll build some booths and we'll just stay here. Apparently the the festival Sukkot was upon them at this particular time. Sukkot was a festival where you would build booths out of stuff lying around, um, like palm fronds and sticks and Rocks, whatever stuff, dirt. Um, And the point is you're sort of living in a thing that was made from just raw materials laying around as a way of affirming that God provides everything that we need. Um, And they'd spend several days a year living in this sukkah. And so the word there that is used is the word sukkah. It means booth. Um, You may have heard of it, the Feast of Booths. They still celebrate it today. Um, And so Peter says, I'll build some booths for all of you. You just hang out. I'll do all the work. And uh, I'll build the booths and we can stay here. Of course. He's like in the presence of rock stars and he wants to hang out as long as he possibly can. Then there's a voice from heaven. It gets even better. Uh, God's like, this is my son, everyone. Like he's mine. And God's proud. And he affirms like, yes, he's mine. He belongs to me. I'm proud of my son. Um, And then he's, so he's declared the son of God. All of this is super super important to understanding this passage. Because here's the thing. Um, This is what we expect the glory of God to look like. Is it not like when you, we think about like the glory of God in heaven, it's like, I mean, white robes and clouds, right? like, and like naked babies with harps. Like that's, that's what we picture the, 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 the glory of God and the presence of God. That's what we picture looking like. And so, and so Matthew gives us that. He's like, they went here, all these amazing things happened. Um, this is what we desire. This is why people seek the mystical experience. This is why people want to see miracles. This is why people want to go to the laser light show and in the, in the, the fog and the smoke and sing the chorus 30 times. Like we, we want to feel ecstatic and we want to feel like we want to emotionally connect. We have to have the mystical experience. Now, I know people that have had mystical experiences and some of them describe it. Some of them don't. It's how powerful they were. I've never had a mystical experience. Maybe you're more like me. Like you've just never, never had a mystical experience in your life. Even though, even though you've, you've desired and you've asked, you've never seen it. And God hasn't spoken to you that way. Um, God has never spoken to me that way. He's spoken to me lots of other ways. Um, but that's apparently not how I connect. But some people receive that gift and it's amazing. But here's the thing. Um, they are not meant to stay here. There's something that happens at the end of this um, where Jesus kind of tells them, like, look, we're not going to stay here. We're not going to hang out. You don't build the booths, don't build the huts, stop fanboying, relax, we're gonna head down the mountain. And here's the thing, the early Christians notice what is called, what we call today uh, an inverse parallel um, between this and another experience um, on the Mount of Calvary, at the Mount of Crucifixion. There is this inverse parallel. Every single thing that happened, there is an inverse parallel that happens, basically the opposite thing happens on the other mountain. And oftentimes Christian, Christians want to sit around and they want to say, this is what the divine, how, how Jesus is revealed in his divinity. Jesus never wanted you to understand that this is how his divinity is revealed. His divinity is revealed in a whole nother experience. Um, and it looks a bit like this, the Mounts of Crucifixion. Instead of these white, shining, shimmering clothes, Jesus is stripped naked, and these men are, are gambling for his clothes. And he bears absolute shame instead of wearing these, these robes of royalty. On top of that, instead of white clouds um, appearing all around them, the, the sky is dark, um, and it's, it's, uh, it's terrifying, and there's lightning and thunder. Um, instead of being flanked by heroes on both sides, Moses and Elijah, there's these insurrectionists, these brigands that are, that are on the side of him, the, the lowest of the low in all of the Roman Empire, and those are the ones who are beside him, standing with hanging on the cross with Jesus. Instead of being praised, he's being killed. Um, and then Peter, on the mountain of transfiguration, Peter's like, yes, this is awesome. Let's stay here and enjoy the mystical experience forever. And we'll come here all the time and we'll just continue having the mystical experience. And Jesus says, no. When Jesus is revealed in glory, Peter has abandoned him and denied ever knowing the guy. This is where we find ourselves here. Now, um, on the Mount of Transfiguration, God is like, he is mine. I am pleased. This is my son. I am so proud. Um, on the Mount of Crucifixion, the father is absolutely silent and Jesus has been exiled. And he's crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is the prayer of David in Psalm, I believe it's 17, when David was, and when Jerusalem has just been thrown out and exiled. Um, um, God, God is the one on the Mount of Transfiguration who declares that this is the Son of God. That's a Greek way of saying king. Um, so we have Messiah. That's a Jewish way of saying king. Son of God is the Greek way of saying king. Um, and it's how the Caesars would speak of themselves. So on the Mount of Transfiguration, it is God himself declaring the authority and the goodness and the, the kingness of, of Christ. Um, on the Mount of Crucifixion, it is the pagan centurion soldier who recognizes and proclaims this really is the king, the Son of God. Um, turning on his own emperor and declaring, this is this is the king. Now, this is huge because Matthew's audience, these Jewish Christians, are repulsed by Roman soldiers. Absolutely repulsed by Roman soldiers. Um, Roman soldiers, th- especially the centurions, have been taking over their cities and oppressing them for a long, long time. And to have a Roman soldier is the only one at the Mount of Crucifixion that says, this really was the son of God. This is the king. This entire story... It's incredible. Um, it's, 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 it's almost like the writers are giving us what we want first, the mystical experience, the greatness of like we're dwelling in joy and happiness and ecstasy. Um, and then they, it's like they look at us and they say, but you can't stay here. This is not where you were meant to dwell. This is how you're filled up. This might be how you receive something, but this is not where Christians are supposed to be dwelling. Um, this scene of power and might, all of it needs to change and be given fresh new perspective because the divinity of Christ is actually seen in a suffering on the cross, not on the Mount of Transfiguration. Where we find the meaning of Christ and the glory and the divinity and the, the, the king, kingliness of God is the exact opposite of everywhere else you would find it in this world. It's the exact opposite Thing. And what they're doing is they're trying to get you to rethink um, what greatness looks like, um, rethink what, what power really looks like, re- rethinking what glory and prestige really looks like, rethinking what it looks like for, for you to really lead people towards goodness. He takes them to the top and gives them this, goodness, this good thing and says, but our real work is going to be done down there. So let's go. I mean, this is exactly what we're talking about this morning with created being here and and the work that they do. This is where the body of Christ is meant to dwell. The body of Christ is not meant to dwell in the ivory towers with the riches and the powers and the prestige um, and the cameras and the lights all over them. It is supposed to be in these places that are forgotten and unseen. This is where the glory of God will be seen. This is where things will be done that will, that will make the world whole again. And this is where the body of Christ is meant to dwell. And it's interesting because as you move forward, it's, it's almost like you only understand one in view of the other. You only understand glory um, in view of suffering. And you really only understand your suffering in view of glory. It's, it's almost like you, you, you start to see the, the weakness in earthly power and then you start to see the power in earthly weakness. Everything is backwards. You start to look at the person um, with all the military might and standing behind the giant cannon, and they're like, "This is a powerful person on the Earth." But at the other end, at the other end, where, where the target's about to hit, there's a group of Christians there where these people hate these people and they're going to kill them, um, the Christians are down there serving them and loving them and reminding them, "You are made in the image of God. There is a better way. We want to invite you into fellowship." with us to take part in this kingdom. We have the table all set. Come in and sit down. And, and, and Jesus is asking them, what is actually more brave? What is actually more powerful? Is it, the, is it the sword or is it the cross? What is it? Is it hatred or love that can actually fix anything? How is the kingdom of God going to be established if the people of God keep selling their soul? This is, this is what he's telling Peter. Put that thing away. And he'll remind them again. And the temptation will keep coming over and over and over. This is the unorthodox orthodoxy. That this is how the kingdom of God enters into the world. The divinity of Christ is seen not on the Mount of Transfiguration, but on the Mount of Calvary. Um, and it's like, it's sort of, you begin to see how capable the cross is. The cross is far more capable than the sword at bringing peace, at, at defending the weak, at displaying great strength, the bravery of the one picking up the cross instead of the sword. um, It's a mightier thing. And so this whole thing is setting us up to head towards Calvary. We start at the top of the mountain and it says, and we're not gonna stay here. This is not where salvation will come to the world from. It will come down there. And so let's go. That's what the rest of the book is about and we are cresting the top of the mountain. And so the only way to respond is to pause like we do every week and to to respond with communion. It is the picture of this whole thing. Our communion servers, you guys can take the elements and spread around the room. Um, The body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ poured out for you so that you could find uh, healing and wholeness. And there is an invitation from Jesus. He looks at you and says, Now that you have received your healing... um, why don't you join the body of Christ, which is breaking itself open for those around so that they can find healing. And as they find healing, we, inv- we invite them, we put out the invitation to them, come, follow us, come with us. And this kingdom grows and it grows worldwide. And then it becomes dangerous to those in power around the world. Because Jesus alone will sit on that throne. Okay, so our, our communion servers are gonna, sp- are gonna spread around the room and take the elements. I wanna invite you to take communion with us. Um... Um, it's, it's, it's wine it's, it's bread it's, it's, it's just a moment where we, we see Jesus Christ in very common things and we are reminded the body of Christ was broken for you the blood of Christ was spilled for you I'll take a few minutes we'll pray and we'll give you some moments of peace if you need prayer right through these doors on the left there's a prayer room there will be somebody in there to pray with you and, uh, and uh, yeah let's pray shall we Father thank you for this place and these people guide us Make us whole. Remind us not to seek earthly, earthly glory um, as a way of fixing things. Remind us not to seek power and, 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 and might as a way of fixing things. Instead, instead, remind us that salvation comes when the, when the body of Christ is broken and poured out for those around us. Use us somehow. Humble us and use us. Instead of helping us grow mighty and big, help us grow um, small and obedient and let us change uh, our city.
0: In your name, amen. Take some time, talk to Jesus.